1: Well, how does a widely regarded former CMO of a blue-chip financial institution go jumping into a blue-chip media company to take charge of building direct-to-consumer revenues? Think subscription's not advertising. Mark Renke took a surprise turn nearly four years ago after leaving Suncorp to become News Corp's managing director consumer. It could have proven dangerous territory, but a few weeks back, News Corp announced it had cracked one million subscribers in Australia, and Mark has been in the thick of that plan. But it's all about to get very interesting, isn't it? What happens to subscriptions, new and existing, for instance, as economic conditions tighten? We've heard plenty of banter around the early sobering signals for Netflix, Stan, and all those other sexy video streamers that might be facing more restrained subscription growth, perhaps declines for some. But is it the same for news-based subscriptions? The answer might surprise you. What we do know is that as media companies try to diversify revenues away from the ad market and understand their audiences as customers, With new revenue opportunities, they have to build new capabilities like tech and CX or figuring out the purchasing propensity for different products among different audience groups and developing journeys and experimentation programs to convert them into paying customers. Sounds all very sophisticated, doesn't it? It's not something most publishing companies have historically cared for, but it is becoming urgent. So joining Mark Renke on developments in the Australian market is a global view on subscription trends from the APAC General Manager for Piano, Tim Rowell. Geno has circa 3,000 media titles globally, using its platform to drive subscription programs, and Tim has some fascinating content consumption trends and common audience behaviors that will challenge many of our perceptions. But enough from me. Uh, Welcome to the MI3 mics, Mark and Tim. Mark, let's start with you first. I've been waiting a long time for this, very patient. News Corp in Australia has just belted through 1 million subscribers. There's no small feat there. But before we dive into the media business... Let's just get to sort of the marketing thing first, which is how was it jumping from a long career in marketing to running a unit of a big media company, reinventing the product every day? I think you mentioned the other day um, has been an eye-opener, but what happened? How was it, Mark? And welcome.
2: Well, firstly, Paul, thanks for having me. I think I would say it's certainly been a significant challenge, a big learning curve, but exactly the challenge I was looking for. Right. I don't think there's any better arena to test yourself in than media. And I say that because consumers and consumer habits are changing really quickly. The formats and platforms that, that are prevalent uh, are changing quickly. The business models that monetize those are changing. So you need to be very entrepreneurial. And what I, I've really enjoyed about News Corp is that space to be entrepreneurial. That cuts both ways, though. Uh, I think in this, in this business, the, the truth of performance is stark. So there's nowhere to hide. Right. So, you know, you, you understand performance very clearly. But what's been really good, I think, Paul, is uh, having a CMO background allows you to really go back to things that you know while the world's changing. If you focus on 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 some of those core things, they'll stand you in good stead. And in my case, I think that notion of running a portfolio of brands, which was really helpful at, at Suncorp and equally so at News Corp, with well over 50 brands from Vogue to the Australian, from Delicious to... To wagering brands. Mm. You know, you've know, you got to have a discipline, I think, to do that. And I think to be able to find growth from your core audiences and segments, but also find new growth also important and to, and to innovate around customer and user experience also been a big part of the journey so far. So it's been a big learning curve and a big challenge, but incredibly satisfying.
1: Well, it's, it's, I don't know. I mean, my, my view would be, it's fairly competitive in the media sector, right? It's, um, Indeed. but then, you know, any different in terms of the intensity of that versus say financial institutions, which a little bit more regulated, you've got some big players. It is, it is competitive, no question, but media any different? What is different about it?
2: Uh, media is, I think a set of industries. It's not one industry, mm. a set of industries, each going through incredibly torturous transformation. Mm the the business models are changing entirely changing that's not so true i don't think in financial services and and that's because media is increasingly global you're competing with global players i think in many other industries that's true to an extent but local um local brands have high degrees of inertia in their customer base that's not true in media it's much faster and i think the thing that's been most salient for me is the perishability of the product. These are 365 day a year businesses. Uh, you're producing new products every day. Uh, those products you have to find audiences for uh, on platform and off platform. So you're constantly reinventing mm. the recipe, which is, you know, so in equal parts exhausting and exhilarating.
1: Yeah, I hear you, uh, actually, big time. Uh, I think uh, one, one of the interesting conversations actually with the ANA, you were on the board for a long time there uh, with the Australian Association of Natural Advertisers. They had I think in one of their annual final uh, end-of-the-year gigs, they had um, Greg Highwood and Kim Williams from, you know, ex-CEOs at News Corp and Fairfax at the time, now Nine, and both of them were saying that to every other sector and every other marketer that was in the room, have a look at media because media has been disrupted before a lot of other sectors, seriously disrupted, and it's coming your way. If you want any lessons, look at what media's doing. Um, was there anything in that based on the fact that you've done both now?
2: Look, I think so. I think and News Corp is, is similar. I had some... You know some natural advantages, but you've got a set of, of businesses and brands and, and a set of audiences, and, and increasingly you're looking to engage them, to be able to migrate them to new models. Uh, we're very open to new business models. Hmm. We've aggregated audiences across many brands, in, and what we're doing that's quite different to other businesses, is stitching them together into a network and then then helping users find the best content on that network. So right. again, it's faster, it's flatter. Mm. And it needs high degrees of of data and intelligence to be able to navigate that.
1: Yeah, well, I, we'll dig into a little bit of that um, a bit later, I hope. But let's get to back to uh, the magic millions, uh, or the magic million, I should say, with, with your subscribers. We're seeing a different sort of profile in the subscribers that you're seeing coming through now, Mark. But may just take us back a little bit. When you landed, what was the number and what was the target? And what have you seen in that in that subscription side of the business um, since 2019? I think you joined, right?
2: Yes, I joined early 2019, Paul. There were 400,000 subscribers. We were organized by state. Right. And the profile of new users was predominantly male, predominantly older. So fast forward almost four years, we're a million subscribers. We are organized as a network. I've moved to a network and center of excellence model. And our our new users, our new readers are increasingly younger and female. The way we got to the 1 million, I think will look quite different to the way we grow to the next million. To get to the 1 million, we had to double down on a few things. We doubled down on local content. right? Increasingly, local content and our mastheads are the, the virtual town squares of the communities that they serve. So we saw that being really important. So it's built on a foundation of great local storytelling. And I think COVID exacerbated that and it'd be worth exploring that a little. Mm. We doubled down on data. Uh, putting the most powerful insights we could in the hands of our journalists, not just how many people are reading stories, but understanding who is reading them, um, the economic value of every single piece of content written in real time so that we can make resource allocation decisions. We doubled down on completely new capabilities and new teams, teams to be able to innovate, experiment, and then scale. Teams on core versus teams on new. Right. Um, so a range of new new capabilities, and we also had to launch new products, Paul. I mean, we, we've launched six new brands in the last 12 months into sport, into mindfulness, into wagering, into younger audiences. So that's been important. But I think the next 12 months, the next two years, and I'm certain Tim will have a view on this, looks quite different. We're seeing the next wave of growth will be younger, more diverse, lighter readers. News means something different. News doesn't mean current affairs exclusively or politics it means fashion food sport entertainment so we are setting ourselves up to be able to serve a much broader range of content and to deliver it increasingly multimedia and right. and I think we, we're, we're moving faster video first uh, but certainly multimedia so I think the next wave of growth looks quite different
1: and they will pay the young, so you're I mean, there's, there's not a resistance from the younger set to pay um, they're used to getting everything for free so what's different about that what are you, what have you got to produce to get them over the line
2: oh, look I think the data proves otherwise paul i mean right. younger younger users are paying for music they're paying for content generally but their expectations are high the expectation on the user experience the utility how it's bundled how it's packaged how personalized it is so yes they will pay and they are paying Mm. but not necessarily for the product we had three years ago or even one year ago. So the innovation in the product, how it's delivered, the platforms that it's delivered on, that that is a constant iteration.
1: So give us an example. So you're bundling content, for, say for a particular younger set, you're bundling content across the portfolio and repackaging it, or are you doing different things altogether?
2: Combination of both, Paul. Maybe maybe the best example for us is the launch of a new brand called the OZ, which right. is a a, a millennial news and lifestyle brand uh, that's adjacent to the Australian. Uh, It's built as a news site, but the experience is very social. Five stories in the morning, five stories at night. Mm. Vertical panels, horizontal uh, navigation. It feels like Instagram. It feels like a a completely different surface. Mm. So that's much younger. We built an audience of of, of well north of 500,000 unique readers in a very short time. And so we can see that propensity to engage, but we've got to deliver it increasingly differently.
1: 500,000 readers and not all of those. So you convert it. there's some sort of uh, journey to subscription conversion on that? Correct. Yeah. Um, And 500,000 in how long ago did you launch it? Six months. Six months ago. So is that pulling from what was conventional younger Australian readers or are they completely new to the OZ? Uh,
2: Completely new. Right. Completely new.
1: Well, wow. okay. So, listen. Uh, there's a lot more to cover, but I just want to bring in Tim now for a global view. Uh, Tim, you you've got, as I said at the top, what nearly three thousand media titles that you're um you got visibility at least on some of the macro trends. What are you seeing, Tim, at a global level on subscriptions uh, generally?
0: I mean, look, it's been fascinating listening to Mark because the way he's articulated things is is already a reflection of the way that the market is going globally. I think if you step back for a minute. What's really happened for news organizations is they have shifted from a newsroom determining what they believe a reader is interested in to then certainly since, say, nineteen the mid-90s, newsrooms being focused and obsessed by the volume and by page views because they were chasing an advertising model. And actually, everything Mark has outlined in the last five minutes is really focused on understanding the customer and then developing a product that interests them that is serving a specific need or a function that they have or believe they have so it's that phrase isn't it news you could use that's right. really what subscription models are now built on
1: and so those big macro numbers uh though tim you talk about it you was a volume game and it's no longer what what do you mean by that and what are the numbers show that substantiate that volume ate the play for subs
0: you know it's interesting if, if you that one of the benefits we have is with 3,000 titles on our platform, is we see the aggregate data. Mm. So we see the behavior of users. We understand their consumption habits, You know the number of page views they can see. In effect, we understand their loyalty to a brand. So, so we aggregate a lot of that data. And what's clear is 70% of the users to most of most websites worldwide just read one piece of content per month. You could argue they're an irrelevant... Because they're not loyal. They're not the heart of that business. And you shouldn't really worry about them. Because conversely, the, the sort of the other stat is roughly nine, 10% of users are consuming 80% of the page views. Hmm. So it's really that 10% of the audience you really need to think about. That's where you will be able to develop additional revenue streams. That's where you can develop subscribers from. And and I think that has You know, when we play that stat back sometimes to certainly people in editorial roles, it makes them sit up and take notice Mm. because what they can then see is they can focus their editorial strategy on a particular audience and then develop that in a way that serves their needs and and arguably actually enables editorial teams to focus their workload.
1: I might just ask Mark, um, how do those stats sit with what you're seeing, Mark? Are you in that sort of frame, in that quantum?
2: I think those stats resonate to the extent, Paul, that we run our business on one lead indicator metric, and that metric is active days. So in our subscriber base, we measure very carefully the number of days in 30 that that reader, that user is consuming or engaging with our content. Mm. And you'll see a staircase there from those that are engaging infrequently to those that are engaging 30 out of 30 days. And we, we religiously run our business around moving those that are only engaging five or 10 days a month up to 15 or 20, those from 20 up to 25 to 30, and constantly moving up. And there's a whole range of UX and content and AI-enabled strategies to do that. But broadly, I think like anything, if you don't use it regularly, you don't value it. And building great reading habits is actually a great blend of art and science. Mm. A lot of science and psychology with amazing technology to deliver elegant experiences that introduce me to topics that you know I'm interested in, but supplement that with the breadth and serendipity of things I I discover myself. Mm. Mm. And to do yeah, that, it can't just be reading. It's, it's increasingly listening. It's increasingly watching content. It's newsletters. I mean... There's just a as you get bigger, the proliferation of needs grows, and you've got to have different strategies to be able to execute at scale, but in a personalised way to move people up that curve. Because otherwise, uh, they won't be a they won't be a subscriber for very long.
0: That's their case. Probably starts at around five active days from the data we see. It's when people hit that level, you know, they have an interest in in what you do. The challenge then, as you rightly say, is whether it's a product design perspective, whether it's, um, you know, recommending content to them, it, your goal then is to deepen that engagement mm-hmm. and your goal is then to drive them to other other forms of content and consumption with you. But, yeah, I think you're right, active days is a key, it, is a very useful way of looking at
1: it. And with your management, Mark, and in increasing those active days, if they're five, you want to get them to seven or whatever mm-hmm. you said, how are you going with that? Is it working? What percentage of the base is moving to increased active days of, uh, in a month?
2: It's a constant process, Paul, because you know, you're know you bringing more and more in and typically when you bring someone in, you've got about 48 to 72 hours to build the right behaviour. Right. If you don't get those first 72 hours right, honestly, our data shows the chance of you moving up that stair- staircase is, is quite low. Mm. So there's a lot of effort early. This isn't a uh, buy a product and, and set and forget. It's uh, introduce your new user to the best of your network. And increasingly what we're seeing is breadth matters. We we run a, a model which is recency by breadth by depth. Right. So bringing you back regularly. Yeah. Breadth matters. If you just read one area, the chances are you won't get up that staircase. But if you're reading sport, uh, some fashion, some... Um, food content you know that that utility that comes from this product starts to really resonate so so much of what we're doing is trying to on a, on a recency basis through things like alerts on apps or newsletters delivered to your inbox every day introduce you to a broader range of content and then then give you the space and UX and and the customer journey to be able to discover within that content deeper you know a deeper reading listening or viewing experience so Mm. it's, um, it's a lot of work, Paul, you're, n- you're, you're never finished. And, and the bigger you get, the more,
1: yeah, yeah. The,
2: the more effort you have to put in. And there's
1: a lot of work, you know, if you think about everything you talk about with CX and tech stacks, there's a lot of work in the journey mapping there, um, and segmenting. So we might try a bit of that get into that a little bit later. Tim, I just wanted to ask, you know, how does that fit? How does Mark's uh, stat or observation that they've got whatever a hell of many hours, up to 40 hours, I think Mark, you said, uh, to get it right. You have this other notion, Tim, which is about sleepers. And sleepers are, are subscribers. Well, you tell us what sleepers are and, and what their behavior patterns are like. It,
0: it was one of the more interesting pieces of data we pulled out of our aggregate data set was, was actually if you looked in any given months, a very high proportion of users weren't consuming any content at all.
1: These are subscribers, and, right? They're paying money.
0: Yeah, subscribers, yeah, they're paying money. And they're not logging in and they're not using it. It sends ripples of fears through mm-hmm. um you know, editorial teams because they're going, hold on, but but why are they not consuming anything?
1: Yes, how could they if not you read you look it stuff? Over a three
0: month, Exactly. And then you look at it over a three-month period and you do see that they do come back and they engage and they consume content. They use it when they need to. And I think, again, it's this shift in understanding how readers behave. There's always been an obsession in news media that there is a correlation between loyalty and volume of consumption. You know and, and that that user has to come back every single day and consume loads and loads of content there are many reasons why someone will subscribe to a new service quite a lot of that and, and one of the key ones is they have some kind of affinity or loyalty to that particular brand and at a time when they really need trustworthy content and content that they believe to be of value they will go to that brand i think that the pandemic accelerated that trend to a large extent, you know, and I think this is why we saw subscriptions grow so dramatically in the first year of COVID. 70% people, or something,
1: right, on, on aggregate, Tim, yeah?
0: Yeah, we we, we saw really, really significant increases. And, and look, part of that was because if you look worldwide, people were just starting with paid content models. You know, there were early adopters of, right. you know, reader revenue or subscriptions, but but many major brands were really starting to push it in 2019. In 2020 and COVID came along and suddenly those those numbers accelerated but i you know in many ways i i i grew up in a household where we used to get six newspapers every day we that's a really strange behavior yeah, that's not common yeah for most of the public they they have one newspaper that they trust mm-hmm. and they had that delivered at home i think what happened between say 95 and you know 2012 2014 where Everyone was going for growth and page views and you know volume of content. I think that sort of loyalty to a brand slightly dissipated because people were just consuming news on whatever site they could get from you know going through a Google search. A lot of that behavior has changed. There's mm. a lot more direct directly going to a brand, to a brand you trust. And do you know what? People don't have the time anymore, mm. you know, to read as much as they were before. So I think, you know, that brand affinity is already that's no, a good point. So what, what
1: percentage, Tim, you know, of the base and aggregate, the sleepers, are they, is it 10, 15, 20% of a subscription base?
0: It can be well over half in any wow. given month. Really?
1: Yeah. Yeah. How does that fit with your data, Mark, which is saying that in the first 40, and tell me if I've got the right, is it 40 hours you give yourself before? Two? Seven,
2: 72 to build 72, a
1: 72, right. 70, so how does that correlate? What do you make of that sleeper stat?
2: Look, I think it's fair to say to Tim's point, there are very, there are different modes of consumption. And there are different patterns. If you map those modes of consumption, there are those that dip in and dip out. We certainly don't see sort of half or anywhere near that, that I'd say we're in the sleeper segment, but you can see those that are, uh, I'm on the bus in the morning. I'm just going to dip in and get the the content that I need, or I'm a sports fan on the weekend and I'm going to look at, you know, the, the depth of content around my team. So you can start to see those modes, Paul. So... All of those, though, I think our experiences is ultimately we're in the business of habituation. Mm -hmm. We've got to build a product so good that it is habit forming and worth every penny that you pay for it. So there are different modes of habituation. Doesn't mean you have to be consuming huge amounts every day, but ultimately um, our experience is if we don't build value into some form of habit building mode, you won't keep the product. Okay.
1: Okay. Just to that point, though, on sleeper, Tim, the classic for me is the information out of San Francisco, which I've been a subscriber for for mm. however long. And it's not cheap, let me tell no. you. But I, I I can't give it up, won't give it up. But do I read it every month? No. I scan, mm-hmm. um, but I'll dip in. But I don't want to give up the access because I know that they do some good stuff. So I'm I'm one of those, at least in one example, in a B2B context. What I wanted to ask both of you about is, let's fast track now. So we've had a little bit of historical stuff. It's COVID was great for your subscription business too, Mark. 70% year in 2020, Tim's aggregate probably sitting this year around 20%. Is that, what's your growth rate at the moment, your run rate at the moment?
2: Yeah, our CAGR over the last six years, uh, but particularly over the last three or four, has been about 20% CAGR. Right. Absolutely. And COVID, to Tim's point, I, I think COVID was an accelerator of that. I think in some ways it brought forward some demand. Right. Uh, it certainly brought forward... Uh, demand that now we, we are reaching into more casual users, particularly right. in a country of 25, 26 million. And I, I think it did that, Paul, because COVID meant that audiences were looking for trusted content and social and those places they'd been going were increasingly difficult for them to trust, mm. particularly in the early days. And secondly, we, we see d- distinct differences between people who just want to be informed about what's happening in the world. Versus those who want to understand what's happening in the world. Those that just want to be informed, we increasingly cater to those through, uh, free sites like news.com.au. Right. But those that really want to understand and have that, what, why is this, why is COVID spreading? What's happening in my area? Those sort of things, they're more likely to subscribe. Okay. So we certainly opened up the aperture when COVID was here. We sampled much more content than we would usually. Okay. We, we saw that as an opportunity where people were leaning in to increasingly allow them to experience our journalism, and we back ourselves when people do experience that journalism to, to be able to convert and keep, and that was definitely the case. I think the question is, you know, what, what will the next two years look like? Mm, exactly. Um, Particularly
1: when you talk about bringing that demand forward. So correct. You've, you've sucked a bit of juice out
2: of the pot. Well, I think globally what we're seeing is lower growth, higher inflation. Right. Now, that typically means that's a headwind for any business that's looking to take money out of my pocket every month, whether that's a streaming service or any other form of you know, a recurring revenue business. So I think all publishers and most media houses, Paul, are going to be rethinking their strategies for the next two years to keep that sort of KGAR in place. Mm. New, you'll, we'll all have to convert um, lighter users with different products, with different strategies, and we'll have to prove that we're worth what paid for. We have to prove we are an indispensable part of life. Partic- I would argue, and, and, and our strategy is particularly when the world's changing like it is at the moment, we should be at our best. Right. We should be able to help explain why interest rates are going up, what's causing it, what you can do about it, um, where the new jobs are, what to do with your kids' education when the price of school fees is going up in this high inflation world. Like, we need to be. Delivering more utility than ever, so our strategy needs to change to keep that growth going.
1: Tim, what's your global sense on this uh, in terms of news media subscriptions uh, versus, say, video—the the video streamers and their subscription fortunes? We we know that there's a lot of talk around that that's going to fatigue, sort of t- yeah, fatigue and and pull back. But is it the same for news?
0: I, we don't see any evidence of that at all. What, what we certainly see, certainly within you know streamers, is. You know, coming out of COVID, it's inevitable there will be cancellations of multiple streaming products that people have within a house. I mean, even within my family, we've, I've got four children. I think at one point we had six streaming services during exactly. COVID just to keep everyone entertained. I mean, it, you know, that that's just unrealistic. And I think actually what we've also seen is, you know, the content distribution deals on those uh, streaming platforms is making it actually easier to cancel some of those services. We're not seeing that within media. We are not seeing mass cancellations. So Mark's point, we're just seeing the growth rate has has fallen. It's it's you know, you're maybe somewhere between five and fifteen percent is the kind of growth rate you're seeing year on year for news media subscriptions. That's still pretty good, you know. But I think it reinforces Mark's point that, you know, you've got to work a bit harder now. You mm. you've really got to work much harder to, to attract that audience. And actually, crucially, to attract that new audience, because as the subscription model develops, it's about incremental improvements. It's small growth and pulling that audience in. You, you know, you're know, you going to pick up your loyal audience relatively quickly, so you then got to move beyond that. Part of the challenge is also keeping that loyal audience. So it's as much a conversation about acquisition as it is combating churn. Mm.
1: You know, it's
0: those two things work hand in hand.
1: The interesting thing here is you talk about well, Mark talks about needing new products, new services, new bundles, and different sort of content offers to different segments to continue growth uh, in the next couple of years. What are publishers globally doing, Tim? Are they are they thinking and operating like Mark, or are they trying to do just focus on what their core product is now and building that more out? What's the sort of the spe- I know there's a spectrum there of, of players, but w- where does it sit generally?
0: Definitely, definitely, seeing certainly larger publishers now looking at. You know sub subscriptions so they might do a sports specific product they might do a rugby union specific product you know i think where they know they have that little audience focused in a particular niche that's definitely a trend that's evident and, mm. and cooking is a cooking is another good example of that kind of thing mm. i think bundling is is interesting i mean for someone like news there's multiple services so you can start to bundle you know different publications or, or related services I think that the way I'd sum up what we see is actually this concept of membership, you know, taking over from the idea of, you know, attracting subscribers. So, and a membership is a relationship, you know, and, and, and that membership may contain additional benefits. And I think for different publishers, you know, if you're a B2B publisher and you adopt a membership approach, that can mean, you know, attendance at exclusive events, you know, that that really help you with your... You know, aspects of your business and networking, etc. I, I think within a consumer, you know, within a consumer environment, I think bundling is, is inevitably a, a way of building a perception of greater value from that relationship and that subscription. So, you know, I, I think news, news are ahead, certainly of others in the way they're approaching that. But yeah, bundling is key.
1: And so, Mike, um, we all talked, I don't know, whenever it was earlier, uh, about sort of what new products look like for News Corp, and you pointed to what the New York Times is doing around cooking. Tim mentioned cooking, but New York Times is doing some cooking-based and puzzles and some things. So what is the next two years? What is new products? What could they look like? And what are the, you know, you've hinted at younger and more and more female, but what are the, the focus in terms of audience and products? What could be in the next couple of years to keep that growth going?
2: Paul, at the moment, we've got a long list of right. about 20 20- Potentials. Uh, they would all fall into the category of what I would call uh, deep niches. So deep enough to be economically viable, uh, passionate enough to be have a propensity to pay and engage mm. and stay. And they would all be what I would call less for less products. So we we size these products so that they're economic for the consumer to buy and for us to produce. Right. So they're not like a normal news use, product, which I describe as an all-you-can-eat. It's got everything. It's curated for you. There's something for everyone. We've launched six in the last 12 months. What uh, are that, they,
1: Mark? Just run us through those quickly.
2: So we've launched a local sports streaming business right. called KTV, Community TV, because we see the power of local sport, uh, very important to local communities.
1: So that's literally the local, what, school and club?
2: We are broadcasting and whatever. thousands of hours of local streaming we're writing content around that, previews, reviews. We're profiling the future sports stars of tomorrow. Mm. And that's an entree into our, you know, our broader mastheads. All, all of these are, are designed to either add value as an add-on to an existing subscriber or to go and find a new audience. Right. So KTV is an example. The OZ Uh, We've touched on Code Sports is a sports-only subscription because young male Australians are following more sports than they ever have, NBA, NFL, EPL, Premier League, and you have to go to so many places to find that content. We've launched that. That's that's proving very successfully. Two wagering sites. The stats behind sport, we've launched a new brand called Code Bet, which is deep statistics to help you understand the head-to-head um, mm. stats and, and, potential for one team to win over another. And then, uh, a puzzles, mind games product called brain gains. Outside of that, then Paul, we're looking at a long list of others and we can stand up a, a very economic, profitable business for a, an audience of, a, you know, north of 30,000.
1: Right, right, right.
2: Uh, because what we're doing now is we built, we spent the last three years building the stack, getting a right. common stack. And now we can stand up new, new opportunities on that stack that have the benefit of scale that, you know, that we put so in place. So just to be clear, when I you say it. an
1: audience of 30,000, that's a subscriber, Correct. a paying subscriber Correct. base of 30,000 um, is viable. Correct. And that content that's feeding those different products you've got now and the ones that are coming, how much of that is repurposed? How much of it is, is originated?
2: Well, I think that's the skill pool. I mean, we, we if I take Code Sports as an example, our sports product, it's, it's broadly a third, a third, a third. A third from our existing sports network, a third bespoke long form special investigations, a third that we take from the New York Post, the Wall Street Journal, the Times of London. And we, we have some we have the best NFL and baseball writers anywhere in the world in the New York Post. We have the best cricket writer in the world, Tim in, in, in and Athers and, and those guys in, in, yep. in London. So you put that together, you deliver it in a completely different experience. And so that model is a combination of bespoke and repackaged mm. content, but it's ultimately all around discoverability. The ability for a different set of customers to discover this content packaged a different way, delivered on a different platform, priced differently, the tone is different. So yeah, there's a lot of work. So it's not just a, you know, bang a few things together from across the network, but we can see that in in a range of new areas from food to fashion to Finance. We've got a whole range of of new verticals that we're looking at, but we're increasingly trying to to experiment, Paul, before we pull the trigger on these things.
1: Yeah, and I was going to say, how much testing do you do? But um, if my quick maths is right, Mark, it would mean that if you've got 20 in the long pipe Mm -hmm. at 30,000 each, that gets you to 600,000, is that right?
2: Well, we won't be launching 20 in the next few years, Paul, but we'll launch two or three a year, every year.
1: Right, so the question, I guess, is you went from 400,000 to a million in four years. Mm -hmm. No question, um, there will be people going. Do it again, Mark. Let's get to the next mill. How feasible is that? And what, what time frame?
2: I think Tim's point is the salient point. I'm not really interested in two million, three million. What I'm interested in is amazing journalism, packaged well, sustainably, consistent growth, rather than. I've got to say, it's a very impressive of way of not answering the
1: question, Mark Ranky. Well done.
2: <laughs> More than a million, Paul, yeah. but you know we we we. we It has to be sustainable.
1: Yeah. Uh, So with all that, Tim, what what do you make of everything you've seen there from Mark at a global level?
2: Well, I mean, listen, it's
0: it's interesting. In in a former life, I worked at the Telegraph in the UK. Right. And the engine room of profit for the Telegraph was the Saturday newspaper and it wasn't the news section. It was the lifestyle sections, which the Telegraph essentially invented. So travel, gardening, lifestyle, um, motoring it was those sections 30 40 years ago that brought in advertising money mm. and I think you know one of my roles actually was once head of lifestyle at the Telegraph and I you know and we were looking at ways in which to drive additional revenue it is completely logical now that newspapers and new services start to deepen their adoption of a vertical and developing specific content and services around it and and the power that media organisations have is they can bring that audience. So through partnerships with, if you think in motoring, you know, if you combine really great car reviews with, you know, a kind of service where you can look at secondhand cars and deliver additional value on top of that, there could well be the opportunity to, to build some kind of additional subscription product. So I think it, it's great now that paid content models exists because it finally gives newspapers the chance or news services the chance to build that kind of model from an advertising perspective it was always a challenge um but i think there is certainty now um and a degree more confidence in in reader revenue models it's much easier to build a business when you have some forecastable revenue that's clear from you know recurring payments mm. um i mean i i'm you know globally it is remarkable how similar every country is. So, so I look after APAC. Obviously, that includes Australia, but I'm based there in Singapore. And, and we see the engagement data. We see the you know, approaches and business models people are adopting. It is remarkable how similar every country in the world is. Now, and every news organization I go to tells me, you know, our audience is completely unique. Our country is completely unique. But the data actually suggests you know humans are humans yeah exactly yeah i just feel you know that if i really think of it in these terms i remember back at the telegraph 12 13 years ago i was a real advocate at that time for paywalls and no one else would believe it would work thank god we've moved beyond the concept of paywalls now into sort of genuine subscriptions because there is a distinction but I, and I you just have think to go. You great. have to
1: go there. As, as you know, kudos to News Corp for doing that, right? So you know, it was News Corp that really sort of put that, took the leap, and you know, derided at the time. I sort of remember. There's lots of debate around that. I don't know, if, you know, where you were at the time, Tim, but it was a big bold move that no one had done before, and created a category, really, didn't it? In, in news, at least for subs. Yeah,
0: completely. I think all credit really. And uh, you know, I I was at the Telegraph at the time, and I was like, we need to do this as well. Mm-hmm. Everyone else disagreed with me, but. Um,
1: Okay, um, but again, you were right. Let them know. I'll, I'll let them know. How about that, Tim? We're talking about news and text. Although w- what Mark's talking about in subscription for news publishers goes really broad. What about audio, and what about you know audio and radio and and podcasts in terms of subscriptions? Is there is there movement at that station yet? Because it sort of seems it's got to be lingering there, looming for something.
0: Yeah, I, I I think it's a really really critical part of. Building a relationship with the audience, you know, the engagement levels, as you well know, from audio products is, is way greater. I think the challenge is a technical one at the moment, in that, you know, the core audio platforms for podcasting in particular, it's very hard to run a subs model through them. The way that Apple operates it, the way that other platforms operate it, it's very hard for a publisher to A, include it within a subs model, or B, derive their own subs revenue from it. I think it's something we've consistently looked at and tried to find ways to to fix, but it's challenging Mm. because ultimately the distribution is happening through someone else and they want a customer, Mm. you know, and quite a large cut. You got any thoughts on that,
2: Mark? Yeah, it's an interesting topic. I think we have seen two sides of this model. Audio is a very important part of our subscription proposition, and I think it's best evidenced through The Australian. The work of Hedley Thomas Mm. on incredible pieces of investigative journalism. Like the teacher's pet, yeah. which just, you know, eventuated in the, the, the jailing then, of right. Chris Dawson after almost 40 years and changing legislation. The night driver, Shandy's story, which Headley's pioneered there, is something that creates incredible engagement for the readers of The Australian and, and has been to date predominantly only available on The Australian. Right. So it adds a lot of value, and we've, we're
1: talking like significant streams and listens, millions, millions, millions yeah, Paul.
2: Yeah. Um, on a global level, this is significant. Mm. Uh, we've we've started strategies such as windowing, so we give our subscribers the first look at you know 24, 36 hours ahead of anyone else, and then we'll sample some of that the other side of the paywall, so that you start to sample. What I love about podcasting, particularly investigative, big pieces such as as Headley's, is it builds an amazing habit where I come back for the next one to drop. It's immersive, Mm. but there are other models. And interestingly, Tim, today, only today, we launched our first ever audio subscription product uh, with Apple. It's a true crime franchise called Crime X. And this is our first attempt to take all of our audio content that's in the true crime space, repackage it again and go find a new audience. So this is audio only, and really what I'm trying to get to there is an international audience, not just an Australian audience. So we've built the product, we've built the brand, we've worked with Apple to be able to find a pathway through with them that, that allows us to fish in a pond that's hopefully and bigger And they showing some flexibility
1: Australian. is Apple. That's Apple, very impressive.
2: Well, look, uh, to be fair, we've we built a strong partnership with Apple, mm. um, and, and there's no doubt. They, they know audiences, they know UX, and if you can... You know find a, an area of common interest which we do here, they're a great partner.
1: And so is that content all Australian for the global audience, or are you pulling so
2: well, yeah how do, how do you pull a global audience? Is Australian content good enough to do that? It is absolutely good enough. True crime as a genre mm. travels.
0: Mm.
2: you know the the incredible story of the teacher's pet or of the bikie wars in Sydney yeah. or of Lawyer X in Melbourne. yes, you know right. those, those stories could be in Washington. They could be in in London. Um, they travel. Not everything travels, mm. as we know, but but we think um, this does. But it needs to be packaged differently. We we will learn from it, Paul. I, d- you know, I don't know if we'll get it right. But these are the sort of things we're experimenting. with. But there
1: is. A, I mean, you're right. There is, a, and Tim hinted at it. There is a difference here, though, Mark, in terms of your audio and podcast products that you are aligning with an with another platform, whereas a lot of your own stuff, your subscription stuff, with your text and your news media. Is you you are the platform you're owning it so there's a Indeed. there's a divestment there uh, of control and visibility I guess.
2: Look, I, I guess Paul, we we see that we audio is a critical part of our subscriber proposition. That's on net on platform. You'll only find it there. But we've got to find new audiences as well. So we're we're trying to really get the best of both. But you're dead right. Look, ultimately you're on Spotify or you're with Apple, yeah. and and you know there are there are strings attached to that.
0: This is about new audiences, though, and you know, if I take my children, you know, 19, 17, 15, I I don't think they've ever ever gone to a news website. Genuinely, they get that my daughter gets all her news from TikTok, keeps on showing me stories on TikTok, you know, and, and my, my eldest son, who's at university now, you know, he's an avid podcast listener, and I think this is about flexibility of the model and about finding those new audiences and understanding what they need and building something for them. I I think it's exactly the right approach.
2: It's a great point, Tim. I mean, in in our core audience, uh, one of those would be the Daily Telegraph. We have built one of the most impressive, I think, new audience plays there that I've seen in a while, built by the team in the newsroom, which is a TikTok strategy behind the scenes of the Bikies Inc. uh, war in Sydney, and the engagement of that, Tim, has been something phenomenal. It's young. right. This is how people are uh, learning about why crime is, why these crimes are being committed, who they're being committed by. But it's a TikTok first strategy behind the scenes, see the story as it's unfolding. And that is bringing significant new audiences into the Daily Telegraph that, that I, I doubt would have found that content before.
1: Yeah, it's fascinating. Tim, it I actually contrast with what's going on at the Oz, I think, but hard paywalls, you're saying hard paywalls has sort of been a protected species, but it doesn't need to be.
0: I think hard paywalls within a consumer context are very challenging because you lose the ability to sample. Once you have got that core audience in, how on earth are you going to bring that new audience to you to help them understand what you have and to sample? You know, the The Times of London is probably the most famous of these. You know, they did it; they took that bold move many years ago. But I don't think it's any secret that they've struggled with growth because they have been locked out. You know, and I think you'll see more opening up from them. I think hard pay absolutely work within a B two B context because that that content, if it's unique enough and if it's in a particular niche, then people will pay for it. I think the biggest trend we see is actually this concept of freemium models, or you get five pieces of content before you can read mm-hmm. something. All of that is kind of disappearing now, and and actually. Most clients that we now work with are moving towards propensity models that are actually completely personalizing the experience that a user sees. If they have a low propensity to pay based on their behavior, then the publisher just lets them roam around the site. They could read as much as they want, because what they're trying to do is then to get them to sample more content and build a habit. People, Conversely, people who have a high propensity to pay based on their behavior, you know, they might well get stopped immediately, and particularly if they're on, say you know, an Apple device where they've got, you know, Apple Pay set up and Touch ID, they might just stop them and, and just not let them read anymore, you know, and it might just be on their, you know, the first page you that month. So, you know, it really is, it, from a technical perspective now, most of our technology is, is absolutely focused on really deep data and analytics about audience behavior at an individual level and then presenting the right message to that user at exactly the right time to make them convert. And that that's a big shift for news publishers because those sort of rules are disappearing out the window, mm-hmm. and then it becomes tech, tech driven.
1: Mark, paywalls and propensity modelling, deep in the weeds on that? And and pay, hard paywalls, I should say, hard paywalls. Yes. The Oz was there, wasn't it? it would,
2: the Oz is a, it's it's a hard paywall, yeah, yeah. and most of our titles I would describe as relatively hard, Paul. They're... they're they're a freemium model. We don't meter. There's not a certain number of articles. What we do is is we lock about roughly eighty percent of our content, and twenty percent is free. So there's a sampling layer. There needs to be a sampling layer. To Tim's point, when there's breaking news or big events, we unlock more. Where it's public service announcement, COVID cases, we'll unlock more. That's really important. But broadly, you know, there's two principles I operate on. If you don't believe your content is valuable, nor will anyone else, so you can't give it away for free, and We've got to create content so good that people will pay for it. So with that in mind, we we do run AI driven propensity paywalls, but not necessarily to get you around it, but to tailor the experience to your introductory offer. What we do is have relatively hard paywalls with a range of ways to experience the full product um, with a relatively easy means by which to join. So we, we use about 65 variables in real time to Tim's point, to work out what mode of consumption that we think you'd like. And what, what are those
1: variables? Give us a couple of, what, what does a variable look like?
2: Heavily around which channel you're in, which content you're uh, interacting with, what device you're on, what time of day, those sort of things, right. Paul. So if you're on Facebook uh, or sports content on a mobile, <laughs> right? You know that, that there's a mode of consumption that will come from that. So you'll hit our paywall. We'll give you some options, but ultimately the porosity of that paywall will be based on the signals that we see. And we will give you an offer that might be a dollar a week for 12 weeks or 50% off or uh, nice. you know another offer based on that mode of consumption. So there's a lot of variables and, and we use about 65 in real time and we build journeys that allow you to you know, follow that mode of consumption. Well, look,
1: it does get us to the new skill sets and capabilities that media companies uh, require and need to make this, um, I was about to say, make this shit happen, but it's not shit. It's really important stuff, but make this stuff happen. Um, so I'm really fascinated. Tim, to you first on on skill sets, very different type of, of thinking and operators required here or not?
0: I, I think the critical thing is there needs to be a harmony between those three key areas in a news organisation the editorial team, uh, the product team, and the subscription or the marketing team. And I think that's always been a bit of a challenge mm. within media companies, you know, where there's been that sort of degree of conflict between commercial teams and editorial teams. Well, I think we
1: we journos have been beaten into submission on that now, haven't we? We do what we're told <laughs> by these commercial blokes here to my left.
0: <laughs> um, I think but yeah, that's probably partly true. Slightly I think the other thing is it's, 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 it's also, you know, this is a data-driven thing you know and i think that is a new skill the the analytics team at a media company used to be a bunch of guys who sat in the corner and no one really spoke to them until the monthly report was due. Yeah. I think now everything is dependent on data and editorial teams are looking for insights of what they should write more about and what works and what doesn't the subscription team are looking at you know little i think percentage points of where they want to drive an improvement and that's you know it, it, it's those skill sets are unfortunately in demand in pretty much every yes, industry Yes, right.
1: multi-sector. And, right.
0: Yeah, and I, I think that's a challenge, you know, for media companies and attracting people and making it exciting. I also think product is a challenge because it's ever more digital, ever more, you know, complex what needs to be constructed, and again, those those skills are in in large demand. But, you know, I, I have seen a number of sort of my contacts on LinkedIn. Pretty excited, actually. There've been layoffs at all these tech companies over the last uh, right. three months Lost. because they, you know, we can pick up some good there's people. There's some good
1: there. talent um, there. Yeah, the talent market's yeah, yeah. back. Um, ha- exactly. How about you, Mark? Um, so it sounds to me like you've, you know, there's some pretty serious stuff going on. Long way, by the way, from me as a younger journo with our subscription department. It's about you know newspapers on trucks and all that stuff. Very, very different. What have you have you had to build an entire team for this new capabilities?
2: There's new teams. Across every part of the business, Paul, and, and I think Tim's summary is a good one. I think if you break it down, in the newsroom, stories are told differently. You know, we think now, what is the best platform to tell this story? It might be video first. It could be audio first, but it's, it's rarely one form. So that notion of what we call polymorphic publishing or multimedia storytelling, you know, that's, that's a big change. Mm. We've just set up an entire digital news academy from scratch. We've done it with Google. We've got 300 people going through that that's right f- now. That's part of their
1: funding, is it? Part Correct. of your deal? Yeah, they,
2: they funded it. We've built it. And that's in our newsrooms. How to film a story right now. Um, so you become the, you commission the story, you film the story, you edit the story. Um, so that's really, that's an enormous change, Paul. So that's significantly different. Audience development. Where do mm. I find my audience? Used to be, I would focus on curating my homepage. That's the predominant way I would do it. Now that that's necessary, but certainly not sufficient. I've got to find audiences on TikTok, on Reddit, on LinkedIn, on Facebook, on, and I have to package my content. Even the same piece of content has to be packaged differently to find that audience on that platform. Mm. We have teams creating hundreds of pieces of video content a week that shows up on Google as a web story, shows up on Facebook as a reel. Right. Same piece of content, just edited slightly differently. So that's that's very different. I think Tim, your point around product UX, increasingly great content is at the core of this, but it still has to be packaged and delivered in a way that is thoughtful and considered, and and does shift with the type of user um, that wants to consume that. So AI-driven personalization is a significant part of where everyone is going. Mm. Not one-to-one, I would say, but modes of consumption at that level, you know, this mode of consumption, we want to shift both the mix of content and how it's presented. And I think the other thing that we're constantly looking for is the are the signals of tomorrow's audiences. Right. And we've, we've built quite a sophisticated capability to scan and, and look for those conversations that are emerging, but not on our platforms. And so we're, we're looking for what the town squares of deep interests are today. Yeah and whether we can satisfy those needs so there's a whole range of new capabilities Paul. We've... How many
1: people are we talking about here to do all that across your portfolio?
2: Well this is this I think to Tim's point you can't look at it as a team this is a as a complete value chain so we've got a couple thousand people across our editorial teams and and my consumer teams that just work on this every day.
1: Mm. I've got to ask you one question before we wrap this up, and is that, you know, from my journalist colleagues, so you hear griping, and it wasn't just out of some of the stuff that News Corp was doing, you hear it from all over, that journos now are being benchmarked on, not on the quality of their story, but on whether they are converting subscribers from their content or they're benchmarked on that. Is, is that what you do, and is that changing? Was there a bit of that, a bit of experimentation, or was it just journos being huffing and puffing?
2: Well, I think two things are absolutely true, Paul, that if we can create journalism so good that people will pay for it, then we create a sustainable model for journalism, which allows us to reinvest in tomorrow's journalists, in cadets, in, in digital news academies. And to Tim's point, recurring revenue gives you great confidence to do that. So I think all of our newsrooms really understand that. They really understand that recurring revenue models are a great path to reinvest in journalism. But what we've done is not so much focus on the what are the targets for subscriptions? Albeit, I'd be the first to say that, you know, we, we definitely have aspiration there. What we've done is put the power of that data in the hands of every journalist. And really what we're trying to do is bring our journalists, our editors, our section editors closer to their readers. So yes, you can see how many people subscribe to an article. You can see now we've built the power to see who subscribed. Are they young, old? What demographic? What psychographic? Are they affluent or not affluent? What geographic? From that, you can start to work out how to create more stories that people want to read because every journalist wants to create stories that people see and read. That does not mean we don't do investigative journalism, that we don't really pursue our purpose, but it does mean that we do put that power rather than keeping it in some commercial black box Mm. up on another level in the building. We do put that power into the hands of our journalists so that they can see where their journalism is resonating. It's not all about subscriptions. That's an important metric. It is ultimately about creating audiences and, and creating journalism that is so good that we can monetize it through many different paths. But what we definitely do do, and don't apologize, is we do give, we give our journalists the truth of performance of their content and the engagement of audiences with that content.
1: And that data and visibility, Mark, has it changed, do you think, the way what journalists write about and how they approach things? Has it, has it shaped? differently, how they would do some, approach things today than
2: five years ago? Unquestionably, Paul, it's changed the rounds in each newsroom because we can see things that we thought audiences really valued that they don't. It's changed the curation, you know, more diversity of content. Uh, that's definitely been the case. I'll, I'll give you an example. Last week that I saw, Paul, we, we had a great story on interest rates and first home buyers. Right and how to save for a home. And when the journalist was looking at where I go next, he was thinking about, I need to do more young people getting into the market type journalism. When you have a look at the data though, To that story? To that story, mm -hmm. it said, actually the audience was actually older, actually about 60 60 years old in this place. So what it was is the the bank of mum and dad. I was
1: going to say parents looking for the kids. Parents looking
2: for kids. So Mm -hmm. the rewrite of that story wasn't necessarily then helping younger people get into the market was right here's how we can helping mum and dad um help younger people getting into the market yeah so it's not so much about you know what was the subscription but understanding who's you know who's engaging with that Mm. that piece of content and then and then trying to build from that you know it's a a great
1: example tim um we we better close up but does that kind of sit with what you're seeing
0: 100 i agree with everything mark said I, i i would just say this the reason why a user converts is not because they've just read one article, and I think this is often a sort of misnomer that editorial teams have: is oh, my article has driven this many subscriptions."
1: It's a bit like last-click attribution. Is it a bit a bit of a vanity metric? Is I, it? Well,
0: for sure. I mean, what we know is you know, on average, a user has to see an offer, an invitation to subscribe, you know, maybe ten times before they actually convert. You know, so they've had a relationship and they've been they've had behavior on that site that eventually leads to a conversion. That might be one article that tips them over the edge, but that is not the sole reason why they become a subscriber. You know, and it, I, I've always been a bit nervous about, you know, journalists being ranked on that kind of thing, but I don't think it tells the whole picture. But, you know, it is really important that from a commissioning perspective, that journalists get sight of that data because it can really help them to develop content, as Mark exactly says, that is really serving a need, in particular, that need for the bank of mum and dad understanding.
1: One last question for you, Tim. Do you think there is a risk or has the risk now gone about this sort of commercially driven, subs-driven or subs-focused or influenced um, strategy? Is it counter to public interest journalism? Is it counter to, like there's some things that may not be big in terms of volume or it may not be hugely uh, subscription driver, but it is important. And, and it's, that's a classic journo, you know argument, right? And I just used it. So um, shoot me down.
2: I
0: I mean, I I don't see any evidence that newspapers have stopped doing that kind of journalism as a result of having a subscription model. I'd actually argue the certainty and the confidence they're getting from recurring revenues from subscriptions means they can invest more in that Mm. because everyone sees the value of it. I mean, I was actually part of one of the teams who did probably the biggest public interest journalism ever, which was the MPs' expenses team, you know, back in the UK, you know, back in 2008. The impact of that on revenue with absolutely astonishing, you know, across the board. And you know, that has to be a key part of, you know, any successful news business if they want to grow.
1: I just want to finish up with a, a watch out or a key watch outs takeouts uh, from both of you for the next year. Tim, let's start with you in, in terms of publishers, news media, and even as we talked about, even audio and so forth, next 12 months, 18 months, key takeout, watch out. What do you got on that front?
0: I don't imagine there'll be, you know, dramatic changes in the way these organizations are operating. I think it's, it's in many ways, it's more of the same, but it, it's a focus on optimization. I, yeah. I think addressing churn is critical as well. There are a whole load of reasons why people churn. And I think the tactics around that, certainly of all the clients I'm talking to, that, that's a key focus.
1: Quick, the biggest two reasons for people to churn?
0: Uh, expired credit cards.
1: Right. Honestly, it's as
0: simple as that. Right. You know, and Not
1: even dissatisfaction with the product, no.
0: Yeah. And also, they may not have enough money in their account on that particular day. You know, they're really simple things, mm. but th- these are important things to
2: address.
1: Interesting. Mark, um, key takeouts, you know, watchouts for you for, for the next 12 months?
2: I think, Paul, reinforcing the customer value proposition, uh, particularly in a, a high inflation environment, would be very important. So that's certainly central to our plans. Why, why? So
1: reminding people of what they're getting or adding more or what does that mean?
2: All of the above. Right. You know, making sure that you can live to the standard that is an indispensable part of daily life. Uh, Number one. Number two, making it easy to pay. More ways to pay in a world that, as as you said, Tim, you know, credit cards maxing out are a very important part of what drives churn. So that's very important. We've got some quite sophisticated strategies there. And I think increasingly to serve the greatest possible breadth that we can to meet more diverse needs as we continue to grow and and do that through a combination of low-tech human curation and high-tech AI-enabled understanding your, your consumption habits and, and introducing you to some serendipity and some really, mm. you know, some amazing breadth that you never would have found.
1: Well, I look forward to uh, sort of circling around this next year and seeing how the humans go against the machines at News Corp. That'll be fun. See who's driving it. I think we have to come back next week for another three-hour episode on all this. But until then, you're relieved, dear listener. So Mark Renke, Tim Rowell, great conversation, fascinating stuff. And uh, thanks for the insights. Stay safe. This MI3 Audio Edition was presented by Paul McIntyre, that's more. Producer, Nick Slater. Music by Matt Dwyer. For more episodes, go to listener.com or download the Listener app and search MI3 Audio Edition to listen for free. Listener.